0: Well, a few weeks ago, we started a new series that uh, we're calling, I Believe, in which it's a little different than we usually do things. We're, we're looking at, at things from a little higher level, a little more intellectual level. We're, we're doing some, some theological construction, constructing a theological house, and in the first uh, week, we looked at how we can know anything about God. Last uh, week, I, I explained why I believe that, that good theology should start with Jesus, uh, as a matter of fact, last week I left you with this. I said, Jesus is the clearest and most complete self-revelation of God. Therefore, if you want to know what God is like, start with Jesus. If you, and we looked at some scriptures that demonstrated that, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that Jesus is the one who reflects God most clearly and most completely. But that, that let, we left off with a question last week, which was, everything we know about Jesus comes from the Bible. So how do we start with Jesus, shouldn't we start with the Bible? And so I told you that this week I'm going to give you some some tools, some framework to help us think about why we can start with Jesus even if... We don't necessarily believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. Now, most of us in this room, I think, believe that. I believe that. But in our culture, there's a lot of people who don't necessarily believe that, who who don't think the Bible is necessarily any different than any other book. And so today, we're going to talk about why, even if somebody believes that, we can still demonstrate the trustworthiness of Jesus and the New Testament documents. And so last week, I, I I gave you this sentence. Uh, I said, we don't believe the stories about Jesus are true just because they're in the Bible. We don't believe the stories about Jesus are true just because they're in the Bible. Actually, we believe the stories about Jesus are in the Bible because they are true accounts of what actually happened in history. I gave you the example of you and your birth certificate, right? Which came first, you or your birth certificate? You did. You did. Right? Not the document of that event. The event happened, and then the documents that document the event happened. The same is true with uh, the, the documents that have been included in our Bible, in our New Testament. Before they were ever collected into a book called the Bible, they were independent documents, and they were documenting something that actually happened. They were documenting a person who actually lived. Um, Just like the newspaper, right? The newspaper reports on things that already happened. The newspaper doesn't create events, usually. It reports on what has already happened. Well, today I'm going to explain to you why we can trust, even from a historical standpoint, the documents that we call the New Testament, specifically the documents that we call the Gospels. And so here's here's the point that I'm going to unpack for you this morning. From a purely historical standpoint, okay? From a purely historical standpoint, the evidence suggests that Jesus of Nazareth actually existed, that he preached about the kingdom of God, was crucified by Pontius Pilate, and even was resurrected. Now, I separated that last clause, and I'll I'll explain why. Uh, the, The first statement is agreed upon almost universally by historians and scholars. There is almost no serious scholar alive who doubts the existence of Jesus. There are some fringe fanatics out there who try to say that Jesus never existed. But even most atheistic and agnostic historians will agree that Jesus really existed, that the message that we find in the, the New Testament documents that we call the Gospels and the Epistles, that, that, that pretty accurately encapsulates the message that Jesus preached and that Jesus really was crucified by Pontius Pilate in first century Palestine in the Roman province. Okay, So this is, this is something that even people who don't believe in God— even people who don't believe that the Bible is divinely inspired, they believe that these documents accurately, at least to, to a, a bare minimum degree, teach that Jesus existed, that he preached about the kingdom of God, and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Now, I believe, and I'm going to explain why, that we can add even the resurrection to that, uh, to that statement, and we'll get into that at the end. So for a few minutes now, uh, this is going to be a little bit like Sunday school again, I'm going to give you some information on why we can trust the New Testament documents as historical sources. Not as theological sources, although I believe we can trust them as that, but as historical sources. We can, we can look at the New Testament documents in your Bible. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John specifically, as well as some of the letters from Paul. Why these documents count as genuine historical sources, even for scholars and historians who are not believers. Okay, And here's why. I'm going to give you a couple of different categories uh, that that lend evidence to this. The first is the fact that we have early and multiple attestation. Let's all say that together. Early and multiple attestation. To attest to something is to, you know, if I attest to something, I verify that it's true. In other words, what we have is the, the documents that we have in the New Testament, they are early, they were written, and most scholars believe this, within living memory of the events that it records. Even scholars who date these to the, the very latest, and I, I think there's good evidence that they should be dated even earlier, but even scholars who go to the very latest, all of these documents are written within less than a century, most, most of this within 40 to 50, maybe 70 years of the events they document. When we're talking about ancient documents, this is, this is out of the ordinary. Most historical documents do not, were not written as close to the events they report as the documents in the New Testament. Nod your head if that makes sense or shake your head if it doesn't. Okay, so these, these documents, they were written close to the event, right? If, if you think about it, A newspaper that reports an event that happened yesterday, that's pretty close to the event. And we have the technology now to be able to do that. We've got printing presses and internet and all of that stuff. When it comes to ancient sources, sources that we know about other things outside of the New Testament, to get as close to 30, 40, 50 years to that event, that's pretty good. So we have early attestation. We have documents that document the life of Jesus within living memory. Luke tells us that he interviewed eyewitnesses, right? We believe, I believe that there's good evidence that there is actual eyewitness accounts to people who heard Jesus teach, who saw what he did included in our documents. That is pretty remarkable in in the context of ancient historical sources, very few other Events this old have this kind of early documentation, this kind of early attestation. And not only that, we have multiple attestation. Multiple attestation. That means we have multiple witnesses telling us about the same thing. Even in your Bible, right? You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are four different documents written by four different people. Maybe they interact and rely on each other a little bit, but all four of these documents have different perspectives, so if you think of uh, a, think of your favorite courtroom drama, right? You're watching television. You, you've got a courtroom drama you like to watch. Is, is the case stronger if there's only one witness or if there are lots of witnesses? Lots of witnesses, right? If lots of people see the same thing, it gives more likelihood that what they're saying is a true story. If only one person sees something, okay, that that might be questionable. But if two or three or four or more people witness the same thing, it it lends itself to greater credibility, more trustworthiness. This is what we have about the life of Jesus. We have multiple different witnesses who are attesting to very similar facts. Now, maybe they differ to some degree on some of the details, but that actually increases, to people who study this stuff, that actually increases their credibility credibility, right? If everybody saw everything the exact same way, most people, you know, in a court of law, if everybody has the exact same story, that might be evidence of, you know, that they're working it out together and they've fabricated the story together. But if they all talk about basically the same thing with maybe little bits of differences, which is what we see in the gospel stories, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that actually lends to their credibility. So early and multiple attestation. The New Testament documents contain multiple Independent sources written within living memory of the events they record. Like I said, this is better than any other event in ancient history. Most scholars trust things that happen. Like, for example... Uh, the life of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, or, or Julius Caesar crossing the Rubicon, all of these things, we believe that they happened, even though our, our evidence for these things are way, way, way less than the evidence that we have for the events in the New Testament. The, the Gospels that we have are historical sources. Now, do they contain some things that unbelieving scholars don't really believe happened? Yes, they do. As does every other historical document in history, okay? Okay. From a, from a historical standpoint, scholars trust that the Gospels generally convey general truth about Jesus, even unbelieving ones. Nod your head if this is making sense. Okay. The reason I'm telling you this is because you know people. You, you believe in Jesus, and you believe, most of you believe that the, the Bible is inspired, but there are people in your life who don't. And so when you share your faith and you talk about Jesus, they say, oh, well, you just believe that because it's in the Bible. But I don't believe that the Bible is God's Word. You can say, well, that's okay. Even if you don't believe the Bible is God's Word, what the documents that we have in the Bible, before they were ever included in the Bible, they were independent sources. And you can say there are scholars who agree that the general message of these documents is generally historically reliable. You can sound really fancy, and you can say, as a matter of fact, the life of Jesus has early and multiple attestation. And if you say that, they'll go, wow, you sound really smart, okay? I'm helping you out. If you want to impress people at work or at your next dinner party, you can say, let me tell you about the early and multiple attestation of the the Gospels in the New Testament, and you'll have people's attention, right? This helps us as we share our faith in a culture that doesn't value the Bible in the same way that it used to. We can speak people's language, okay, and we can help them understand that even from a historical perspective, the documents that we have in Scripture are generally true, generally historically reliable documents. Okay, if you thought that was a big word, here's the next reason that we can generally trust from a historical perspective the New Testament documents, because they have historical verisimilitude. (laughs) Let's say this together. Historical verisimilitude. One more time historical verisimilitude very good that means historical realism okay if, if if you can't remember that word you can write it down if you think attestation is going to make you sound smart to your friends just say, they'll they'll trust anything you say after this <coughs> this means historical realism what the <coughs> what this means the new testament documents accurately represent jewish and the, the jewish and greco-roman world of the 1st century Right? When we read the documents in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the letters of Paul, when we read the world that they describe, the, the people, the places, the events that they describe, these are events that we know from other sources, these are ways of life that we know from other sources, are historically real. Right, So, for example, the Gospels talk about Caesar Augustus, that Jesus was born during the reign of Caesar Augustus. Well, we know from other sources that Caesar Augustus was Caesar when the Gospels say that Jesus was born. Uh, the Gospels tell us that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Well, we know from other sources that Pontius Pilate was the, the governor, the, the, the ruler over the region of Judea from Rome during the time that Jesus, the Gospels claim that Jesus was crucified, right? There are places that the Gospels talk about that we know from other sources from uh, archaeology and other, other historical sources, we know that these are real places. The Gospels describe them accurately. Uh, the crucifixion, the, the Gospels describe Jesus' crucifixion, and we know from other historical sources that the crucifixion described in the Gospels corresponds with how the Romans actually crucified people. Right? So the Gospels, they accurately describe the world of the Jewish and Greco-Roman uh, world in the first century. Uh, it, and because of that, we can trust that the things that it, they, that it says in other areas, it lends credibility to the fact that these are historically reliable documents, historical verisimilitude, historical realism. This is one of the reasons why even non-believing historians and scholars believe that, that the Gospels are historically reliable accounts generally. So... Here's what I want you to get from this part of the message. At a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, we know the New Testament documents provide historical documentation of Jesus's existence, of his basic message, and of his crucifixion. And like I said, even non-believing historians and scholars will agree with us. So if you come across somebody who says, I don't even believe Jesus existed, you can say, that's very, very silly. Because even atheistic and agnostic scholars believe that Jesus existed, that he preached about the kingdom of God, and that he was crucified by Pontius Pilate. This is historically, almost nobody disagrees with this. Now, I happen to think that they're even more reliable than just this bare minimum. I I think actually that we have, uh, that that the Gospels themselves, even from a historical standpoint, are trustworthy even more more than just this bare minimum. But even that is pretty good, that we can use this as a basis for our foundation. We have a basic idea. We know that Jesus existed. He was a real person who walked on the earth and that he taught this basic message about the kingdom of God. But that could lead to another question, right? That could lead to another question. Why believe Jesus? Okay, we believe that he existed. We believe that we have an accurate representation of his message. But why should we trust what he said? Why should we believe what he said about God? That might be a question that you get. Because there were lots of people who really existed, who said things about God, right? Why should we trust Jesus? For example, the prophet Muhammad, right? Nobody doubts that Muhammad actually existed or that he said things about God. Why should we trust Jesus over Muhammad or anybody else who's ever lived and said things about God? And the answer to that, I'm going to give you two words, okay? The resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus. Now, I am going to make a case for why I believe, one, that the resurrection is a historically reliable event. If you've been to any of my Easter services, this is going to sound familiar, but I want to give you these tools again. And why the resurrection proves that what Jesus taught us about God is true. Okay? I'm going to, you've heard me quote Andy Stanley before. He says something like this He says, If somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm just going to go with whatever they say, right? If you can predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off, I'm just going to trust that what you have to say about things is probably true because that's a pretty neat trick. It's more than a trick, right? Okay, so here I'm going to give you now, I'm going to give you evidence establishing the historical probability of the resurrection. Again, I'm giving this to you because you're going to have people, you're going to say, I believe Jesus was raised from the dead. They're going to say, Oh, you just believe that because it says it in the Bible. And you're going to say, No, 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 no. It's better than that. I believe it because I believe it's the best explanation of all of the evidence. So I'm going to give you, th- we're going to pretend like we're in a court of law, and I'm an attorney, and I'm going to give you three exhibits, three pieces of evidence that I believe. Uh, establish the historical probability that Jesus really was raised from the dead you ready you 're the, the jury I, i'm the i 'm the lawyer here so here 's exhibit a the empty tomb the empty tomb is the first piece of evidence that points to the fact that Jesus was probably raised from the dead you see the the easiest way for anybody to disprove the the claims of the resurrection would have been to produce the body of Jesus. Right? So Jesus was crucified. Everybody believes that. Everybody believes that Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate. But then a few days later his closest followers start saying he's been raised from the dead. And this caused a big stir. Right? The religious leaders didn't want to hear that. The, the political leaders didn't want to hear that. They had killed Jesus for a reason. He was stirring up some trouble. If he's back from the dead, that's a big deal. So if they wanted to disprove this rumor that Jesus had been raised from the dead, all they had to do was say, "Nah, uh here's his body. If they could say, here's his body, there would have been no resurrection. That rumor would have died right away. But nobody was able to produce Jesus' body. As a matter of fact, we're told in these historical documents that they made up stories. They actually they, they, they got together and they conspired to blame it on the followers of Jesus, blaming that, they, that the followers of Jesus took the body and hid it so that they could make up this story. Right? The easiest way to disprove the resurrection would have been to produce the body of Jesus. If there was a body, there was no resurrection But there was no body. There was an empty tomb. Now, some of you are sharp cookies, and you're thinking, well, the empty tomb alone doesn't necessarily prove the resurrection. And you're right. The disciples could have taken the body and hidden it. An empty tomb alone doesn't automatically prove a resurrection. Which leads me to now present you Exhibit B, the post-resurrection appearances. The post-resurrection appearances. What we have, we have more than 500 eyewitnesses who claim to have seen, spoken with, touched, or eaten with Jesus after his resurrection. I'm gonna give you an example of this. The Apostle Paul, who's writing a letter to a church in Corinth Uh, probably around 50 or so, 55 or so uh, A.D., only only 20 or 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion. Here's what he writes in this letter to a real group of people. And, And nobody doubts the authenticity of this letter. Here's what Paul says. He says, For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received. In other words, Paul is telling them something that he had already heard from somebody else that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was what? Raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, or Peter. Then He appeared to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then He appeared to James. Then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So here's Paul, and he's writing this letter. He's saying, okay, I told you about Jesus. He was crucified, he was buried, and he was raised. And if you think I'm pulling your leg, I've got a list of 500 witnesses who saw him at different times. Now, why would Paul say something like that? He's saying, if you don't believe me, check my sources. Right, he's throwing out a challenge. He's saying, "I've got a list of people who have seen them, and not just at one time." Right, scholars have, you know, uh, unbelieving people have tried to to give a, a rational, natural explanation for this—that maybe it was like some mass hallucination, right? Um, or maybe, you know, in their grief, they experienced Jesus. And, and all of this is true. Sometimes, when when uh, somebody close to us dies, we will we will ha- we, our mind will play tricks on us, and we'll see that person. But what we, the, the stories we have of these post-resurrection appearances are so different. Jesus shows up to different people at different times. Not only, not, not only do they just see him there, but they touch him. They touch his resurrected body. He, he cooks breakfast for them on the beach, right? And Paul's saying, I've got witnesses, more than 500. Well, some of them are dead, but most of them are still alive. If you don't believe me, go check with them. That's not a challenge you throw out if you don't have the evidence to back it up. So when you take the empty tomb and you mix it with post-resurrection appearances, now we have a pretty good case that, that the best explanation is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. Now, if there was, if there was no empty tomb, if they had the body, then the, then the post-resurrection appearances don't mean much. And if you have the resurrection, if you, if you have an empty tomb, but no post-resurrection appearances, well, that doesn't mean much either. But together, all of a sudden, the, the real resurrection of Jesus becomes the most plausible explanation of what really happened in history. But I'm going to give you one more. Exhibit C, the transformation of the disciples, James, and Paul. What we see in these documents, we see the Gospels tell us that after Jesus was crucified, the Gospels tell us that his disciples were locked, they were hidden behind a locked door for fear that they would be next. Their leader had just been killed by the authorities. They were hidden in fear, thinking that they would be next. All of a sudden, 50 days later, these people who are hiding in fear are now standing in the middle of the temple proclaiming that this guy that had been killed was now raised from the dead. A massive transformation. The very fact that the, the, the gospel stories themselves tell us that these guys were hidden in fear is evidence that they're reliable. It's called what historians call the criterion of embarrassment. Right? If I tell you a story that makes me look good, you might think that you know that I'm. That, you know, if I told you that I caught a fish that was this big, well, you know. Um, but if I tell you, you know, that I caught, I only caught, I went fishing and I only caught, you know, a fish that was this big. Well, that's kind of embarrassing, right? That there's there's probably more tr- probably more likely to believe me if I tell you a story that's embarrassing. Well, the fact that the disciples were hidden in fear, it's kind of embarrassing. It, it lends credibility to the truthfulness of the gospels. But all of a sudden, we see this major transformation in their life. They go from hiding in fear to then looking face to face with the same people who had Jesus crucified saying, you killed him, God raised him, say you're sorry. Right? Major transformation. Something has to account for this transformation. James, likewise, James was the the younger half-brother of Jesus. James, we know while well, Jesus was alive in teaching, James sort of thought Jesus was crazy. He was not a follower of Jesus while Jesus was alive the first time. Something happened to Jesus, to, to James to change his mind about his brother. You've heard me say this before. Again, I, I take it from Andy Stanley. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was the son of God? Probably nothing short of being raised from the dead, right? The transformation of James himself, something happened to convince James that his brother really was the lord the son of god showing up after being crucified by the romans might do that the transformation of paul paul was a zealous pharisee he was dedicating his life to destroying the jesus movement he was taking jesus followers and bringing them off to prison and bringing them off to their death all of a sudden in one afternoon this this guy who had dedicated himself to destroying the jesus movement became its greatest defender. And he tells us that he experienced the risen Jesus. So something has to account for this radical transformation in all of these people's lives. And when you take this, Exhibit C, with Exhibit A and B, the empty tomb and the post-resurrection appearances, all of the sudden we, we have a pretty clear picture. The best explanation of all of the evidence is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. Does anybody know who this guy is? Anybody? His name is Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson. Anybody know who that is? Yes, Watergate. So Chuck Colson, he was special counsel to President Richard Nixon during Watergate. He was not a Christian at the time. He was one of the ones. He he was... uh, instrumental in the whole Watergate scandal. He was indicted and sent to prison. During that process of of being indicted and sent to prison, he became a follower of Jesus. Later in his life, he explained why he came to believe the stories of Jesus were true. Now, he was a lawyer, special counsel, you know, very smart guy. And and following, I'm going to give you a a summary, uh, summarizing the things that he said about why he became to believe in Jesus. Here's what he says. Here's a, it's a paraphrase, but this is basically it. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Maybe not. Watergate proved the resurrection. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. We, we know this is true. He goes on to say, that would not, They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep a lie for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. In other words, he's saying the only way that the 12 guys who were at one point like hidden in fear, the only reason that they would, they would continue to proclaim this truth after being beaten and persecuted, in some cases killed, the only reason they would continue to do that is if it was the actual truth. He saw people try to keep a lie, try to keep a story straight, couldn't even do it for, for three weeks. In other words, the thing that convinced Chuck Colson that Jesus really was raised from the dead, was the fact that there's no way that 12 guys could keep that story straight with all that they went through if it wasn't true. So here's the bottom line. The best explanation for all of the evidence is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. For people who want to consider evidence, who, want to, who, who consider themselves to be rational, logical people, The very simplest explanation, if your worldview will account for it, was that Jesus really was bodily raised from the dead. So, you may be thinking now, or whoever you're talking to may be thinking, well, so what? So, uh, okay, Jesus was raised from the dead. What does that mean? It means three things. It means, one, that we can trust that Jesus was who he said he was that the message that he preached in the Gospels was true. We can trust that it was true. If you can predict your own death and resurrection and pull it off, what you say is probably true. We can trust that what Jesus said about God is true, that the God revealed to us in Jesus really is what God is like. Third, we can trust that what Jesus says about Scripture is true. So in other words, to to circle this back around, we don't believe in Jesus because the Bible says so. We believe in the Bible because Jesus says so. Because even from a historical standpoint, we can trust that what Jesus said about God, he actually said, and that what he said about God was true because he, out of all other people in history, was raised from the dead, vindicating his message. The the resurrection is a vindication of Jesus' message. It tells us that what Jesus preached is actually true. So why does this matter to you? Because you want to share your faith with somebody. You, you have somebody that you're, you're explaining your beliefs to, and they say, oh, well, you, I don't believe in silly magic books. And you say, well, that's okay. You don't have to. Let me give you some historical evidence why I believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And if, and you can say, if I can demonstrate that the best explanation of all of the evidence is that Jesus really was raised from the dead, then you kind of got to agree with me that what he says is true. Because if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection and pull it off, you just got to go with what they say. Right? So this... For those of you maybe who are, who are skeptical in the room, hopefully this gives you some, some solid historical foundation that you can trust that Jesus was who he said he was, that what he said about God is true, what he said about scripture is true. And for the rest of you, for those of you who want to share your faith in a world that doesn't have high regard for the Bible, hopefully this gives you some more tools, a different foundation to be able to explain why you believe what you believe in terms that they already understand And agree with. And for all of us, this means that we really can start our theology with Jesus. We have a firm foundation to believe that what Jesus tells us about God is true. And so next week, we're going to start looking at what Jesus specifically tells us God is like. We're going to look at the picture, the portrait of God painted by the words and actions of Jesus. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for your truth. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in history, through real life and real events. Thank you for raising your son Jesus from the dead, for, for preserving these historical documents, telling us about what Jesus did and who he was and, and what he said. Father, I pray that for those of us who are searching for, for greater understanding, for greater certainty, for greater trust, that you would help us to grasp on to these truths. And Father, as we move forward, help us to see who you are through the way that you've revealed yourself to us in your Son, Jesus Christ. May we come to know you, and in coming to know you, may we come to love you, and in coming to love you, may we come to follow you and dedicate our lives in service to you, to trust that you have our best interests at heart, that you really do want the very, very best for us. Help us to love you, to know you, to trust you, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.